welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number nine of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and today I am joined by our guest, Enrique Rick Prado, a military veteran, retired Central Intelligence Senior Operations and Paramilitary Officer, Peter Pan Refugee, and author of the best-selling book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Rick started his professional career with service in the U.S. Air Force as a member of the elite pararescue teams, best known as the PJs. Following his military service, Rick served as a paramedic in South Florida, and it was a contract position that led him into the world of paramilitary and clandestine operations with the CIA, where he eventually retired after 24 years of service. During his career at CIA, Rick completed six overseas posts as an operations officer. He later served as deputy chief of station and plank owner of the original Bin Laden Task Force Issues Station as well as the chief of station in a hostile Muslim country. He served as chief of operations in the CIA's counter-terrorist center during the September 11th attacks, where Rick helped coordinate CIA and CTC's special operations activities with the National Security Council and FBI, as well as with elite U.S. military representatives from Delta Force and SEAL Team 6, who were then detailed to CIA. He retired as a senior intel service two a major general equivalent at CIA. Upon his retirement from government service, Rick worked as a private military contractor at Blackwater, ultimately serving as vice president of special government programs. Today, Rick serves as a board member of the Association for the Recovery of Children and is a former co-owner of Camp X Training, a company that provided courses on covert tradecraft, counter-surveillance, undercover operations, covert travel, and cultural immersion before it was successfully acquired. Rick, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today to share your insights on executive protection and security management from the lens of a shadow warrior. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate you having me on board. Absolutely, Rick. Uh, Again, the pleasure is ours. And uh, for our listeners today who don't know you personally and are just getting a window into your life, uh, you actually were recommended to me by Mike Trott, the guest in our first ever podcast episode. He kindly introduced uh, the two of us about having you on as a guest, and we've been in contact ever since, working to coordinate a time for this interview. So, Mike, uh, if you're listening today, uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, we we really appreciate it, and I think we're going to have uh, some good stuff to talk about. Um, and Rick, I know you and Mike uh, have a bit of shared history together. Uh, did this develop post-agency, or did you guys happen to bump into each other while still working at CIA? I believe it was post-agency. I think it was post-agency. Although, you know, we probably crossed paths there too. So, no, it's just great, Rick. And uh, as you know, we think the world about Mike here, and uh, I know you do as well. Uh, he's a very respected member in the security industry and just an all around great guy. So, for our listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to uh, episode one of the GSPG podcast, go check it out. Uh, Mike's got some great nuggets there. But now, Rick, um, I typically like to kick off these conversations from the beginning of our guest professional journey. But uh, you have a life story that seems just to weave right into your professional one. I know you cover these early years in your book, Black Ops, but 
for our listeners who haven't had the chance to read this yet, um, and for those who are just learning your story today, can you share with us what it was like to grow up in pre-revolution Cuba? And then as a young boy, what it was like to be thrust into the realities of a full-on revolution? What was this like for your family and so many others who eventually lived under the Castro regime? Yes, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that um, God puts a path in front of you. Uh, and if you have the courage to walk it, you will have a great life. But he also molds you along the way. And I think that my forging started um, with that experience. Um, the, uh, I lived in a small town in the foothills of the mountain range where Che Guevara uh, had his uh, guerrilla forces. And um, they attacked the town two or three times that I could recall. One time in particularly, I was standing by the window and literally a firefight broke out and there was a guy with a machine gun on the other side of the window. First time I heard uh, gunfire in anger. Wasn't the last, but it was definitely the first. And uh, so that began the, uh, the revolution um, uh, a little bit later in uh, 59 or January of 59, Castro took over and the changes were horrific. Um, within six months, my dad's business was confiscated. Um, and shortly thereafter, my father said, we need to leave. I don't want my son. I'm, a, I'm an only child, uh, you know, living in, in, in under communism. Well, um, my parents couldn't get out. Um, so they tried to get me into this program called Pedro Pan, Peter Pan program, which was established through the Catholic Church. And their, their job was to take kids like myself, whose parents could not get out and put them in some homes or, or, or elsewhere or some of the camps. So um, I, I remember on the way to the airport, uh, it, was, it was my last memory of post-Castro Cuba was three guys hanging from trees by their neck with signs that said counter-revolutionaries. That was my parting uh, view there from, from Havana. So I left uh, in um, April of uh, 1962 and um, solo. I actually went to Miami uh, to a small camp in Florida City for about two weeks. And then I was relocated to Pueblo, Colorado, an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. And you know, Pueblo, Colorado is a blue-collar town now. You could imagine back in '62. So the the orphanage was um, it was a hell of a wake up, um, and, and had to grow up. I turned 11 actually in the uh, at the orphanage. Man, Rick, um, what an impactful portion of your story. Um, coincidentally enough, I used to have an office in Colorado Springs. Uh, not too far from the Garden of the Gods. Um, and I've driven through Pueblo several times. Um, and I'm sure it was quite a culture shock going from Cuba to a place that is more prone to snow and cold on a periodic basis. Um, but also, as you know, my girlfriend is Cuban. Um, and her grandfather was jailed for over nine years in a Cuban prison for simply having an American flag. He eventually got out and her grandparents and her mother fled Castro's Cuba on a raft. But what was it about those early years in Cuba? Um, did they have any effect, any catalyst to your willingness to join the CIA later in your adulthood? I believe it did. I, I believe that that was uh, the forging of my medal starting, you know, uh, at an early age. So it definitely affected me. Uh, I, I have incredible memory of, the, of those days. And my father, uh, who passed a few years ago, used to tell me, how can you remember so much? I go, Dad, I wasn't living a normal childhood. I'm, I'm walking through bridges that have been blown up trying to get somewhere, and I'm flying out of the country by myself. Um, that in itself was a shock. I mean, uh, I remember seeing my parents on the other side of what they call the fishbowl after I had gone through, and my, my uh, mom was 
hysterical and turn around to go into the plane. That's the last thing I remember. I do not remember getting on the plane. I do not remember where I sat. I remember landing in Miami. Uh, it was, I guess I was in, in shock. I just didn't, didn't demonstrate it. I think that was one of the surprising things. I never cried there and I never cried at the orphanage. And I think that a lot of that had to do with my dad's upbringing of me of what the man is supposed to do. You know, that's very interesting, Rick. And, and I think that there's been a significant culture shift away from those principles that were instilled to you by your father and that gave you this foundation you really needed to push through such difficult times as a young man. Um, and with that, you decided that the military was going to be an avenue that you wanted to pursue. So you joined the elite Air Force pararescue. And for those who don't know much about the pararescue teams, could you explain a little bit about their mission and what it is these guys do so that others may live? Well, you, you started it off correctly because that is our motto, that others may live. And pararescue is part of the special operations community, um, along with SEALs, combat controllers, Green Berets, and, and so on. Um, our mission, primary mission, is going behind enemy lines and rescuing either downed pilots or teams that have been you know, wounded or, 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 or out there on their own, that they have no backup. That is the crux. And uh, the joke, because I, I, I used to teach at Fort Bragg for quite a few years, and the joke was always, is, you know, we love you guys, but we just hate seeing you. Because if we're seeing you, <laughs> something is wrong. So um, I'm very proud of that association because it, it is an elite and it was very tough. It's no different than all the other services. The attrition rate is 80%. And, um, but I think that what the, the differentiates pararescue is that, yeah, you go in harm's way. Yeah, you have to shoot. Yeah, you have to do this. You have to do that. But the ultimate point is you are rescuing somebody's life. And not only that life, but the life of those parents, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. Uh, so um, it's, it's, it's a big deal for, for us as satisfaction-wise. Yeah. Absolutely, Rick. And uh, it's a unique role within the United States military community. And there are a lot of families that can point to this elite group and thank them for bringing their sons and daughters home. Um, but with that, uh, if this was a Hollywood movie about the book that you wrote and your life that you lived, someone from CIA would have just plucked you out of a helicopter directly from the PJ teams while you were serving in the military. But as it's mentioned in the book, you didn't slide directly from military service into CIA. In fact, you instead headed back home and became a paramedic firefighter in South Florida, where you served your local community in a similar yet different capacity as you had abroad. Um, what was the drive behind this endeavor, and who kind of led you in that direction or mentored you along the way? Well, I, again, it's, uh, I, I get correctional uh, adjustments from above, usually with a two-by-four. And uh, I went into pararescues because I wanted to go to Vietnam. That tells you how smart I was. Um, I wanted to go to Vietnam because I felt that I had a debt of honor for this country, uh, for what they did for my parents, what they did for me, the kind of life that I've been able to lead. And uh, so I went into pararescue. I, we, I went into the Air Force in 1971, December of 71. Got my beret in, in, in early 73, I think it was, or late 72. And uh, Vietnam was pretty much over. Uh, I had put in for it, everybody was putting in for it, and it wasn't going. So I ended up uh, at Homestead Air Shore Space, which was was cool. It was close to home. Um, but in 1974, after I did two years of active, I decided just stay only the reserves kind of thing, and I needed to find a job. Well, there was a pararescue man in, in, my, in our unit, Jim Wilson, who was a captain with the uh, Metro Fire Department, and his, he was in charge of rescue. And this is 
you're talking 1974, there was probably three rescues in the whole county. Yeah, so in fact, I started writing rescue as a rookie, um, you know, rather than, than, although I did some good firefighting, but nonetheless. So that also that around that time is the first time that I that I actually wrote to the agency, handwritten letter saying, look, you know, I'm free and single and have gun will travel and all those little sayings. And uh, they came back with a real nice note, basically saying, look, we're firing people. We're not hiring people. So I let that sit. I, I did six years with the uh, the paramedics. Uh, it was a wonderful experience for the most part. There are a few things that uh, that did happen, and I talk about them in the book that I wish I could unsee, but um, it, it was part of the effort of, of trying to save lives. But yeah, it was a direct carryover from pararescue because that pararescue men come out as EMT2 qualified individuals. So I applied again in 19... I stayed in the reserves until 1980. In 19... 19- 80, uh, I applied to the agency again. And this time, um, I think the combination of pararescue and the uh, and the fact that now I was a medic that had, you know, six years in Miami during the, you know, during the 70s, they said, hey, you know, we could use a medic on contract to come and support our special activities division. I had no idea what that was. Ground branch, I had no idea what, I, what that was. The uh, I said, absolutely. But it, but it was contract only. So I was back home when uh, Reagan took over as president. Uh, he declared war on communism in our backyard, which was much less needed. You know, we had Cuba, Nicaragua had fallen. It's, they were trying to foment, where they were fomenting trouble in, in El Salvador, Bolivia, obviously with Che Guevara and everybody else. So it was it was endemic. And lo and behold, um, the agency did not have at the time a native Spanish paramilitary guy. They had people that spoke perfect Spanish, but they, they didn't have the paramilitary background. And they had guys who had great paramilitary track, but they did not have the ethnicity or the language uh, uh, capability. So they, they scrambled to where, where was Rick Prado, that Cuban guy, that PJ, whatever it was. And I got a phone call and they asked me, uh, was I interested in, in working? And I said, just one question. Uh, is this full-time or, or part-time? I wasn't going to take part-time. And they said, no, this is full-time. I said, I'll take it. And they asked, they said, don't you want to know what it's about? I, said, I don't care. When do you want me there? So that, that's how I got in uh, again, backdoor. And, and I always like to emphasize that if I would have been anything else in the military, other than a PJ or maybe, you know, an 18 Delta with with the, with the Green Berets, which is a medic, um, I would have never gotten into the agency. That's so fascinating. And uh, and we'll talk about it later, kind of that direct parallel into these executive protection teams and into the security management world, how important the medical aspect is. And we've had a previous guest on, Michael Gerges, to talk about that as a medical director. Um, but I'm often reminded from my friends at some of the three-letter agencies that say, hey, man, if you go get your EMT, you'll be on a team in about six months. I mean, it is just so highly valued and you can be taught anything else in addition to that. But if you have that coming in, it, it's it's so highly sought after. Um, and I want to talk about kind of your, your t- first 10 years at CIA. You, you alluded to this contract position that then led to full-time um, as a paramilitary officer, and you had the perfect kind of nexus between your Spanish-speaking capability and your paramilitary background. Um, and this led you, like you said, to Ground Branch, which um, if you are a reader and you've read uh, Annie Jacobson's books um, on some of this, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, it's a very unique branch of the CIA, even within you know the political military community. Um, little was known about it previous to probably 9-11. And you ended up over in anti-Sandinista Contra camps 
in this capacity? And can you speak kind of what that was like, um, how you prepared for something like that to go um, and be this kind of one man army that then gathered a bunch of other individuals and pointed them all in the right direction? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I, I believe that the only preparation I had had been life. You know, the way that I was brought up, as we talk about, pararescue obviously was the backbone. Um, but I literally showed up at the agency on on a, on a Monday, and two weeks later, I was in Honduras. Uh, the only training they gave me was briefings and gave me alias docs. And, and I was there on the ground, and their, their marching orders was, you have a really good boss down there. There was only five of us. Uh, and only, and I was the only uh, guy allowed to go to the camps for the first 14 months of the three years that I was there. So the, 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 uh, the only preparation was my street savvy, which came in very handy in, in several locations. And you read that in the book. And of course, my military background. I, uh, I did three years there, Monday through Friday, sleeping in a jungle hammock and loving every second of it for two very important reasons. The first one, I've always been a big reader. I love to read. And as a kid, I read all the James Bond movies. So me doing something with CIA was always a back of my mind. Even when I went into pararescue, I said, this is the kind of stuff where you start. And um, for for the uh, the continuation of that program, uh, the fact that I slept in a jungle hammock from Monday through Friday for three years and never regretted it was because of that and because every night I would sit down with a different campfire of Contras. And we've been training all day. I've been training them everything from headspace and timing on a 50 cal to, you know, communications and, and, and shooting the RPG-7. Uh, they got some pretty good uh, photos in the book about that. But I would ask them, I said, you know, why are you here? And no surprise, no, nobody knew about Marx or Lenin or, or anything. It, it was all personal. It was the, the personal atrocities being committed on their families and most importantly for them, their, their, their church. Uh, Nicaraguans are very Catholic very religious. And that was one of the, the, the resonating messages was, you know, they beat up my priest, they burned my church, they forced my kid into, into the military underage and, and all this kind of abuses. So it was a very pure reason to be there, which did not allow me to feel why, why what am I doing here? These people are here, you know, in, in much worse conditions than, than, than I was. So, I, you know, for me, I didn't realize it as much as at the time, but later on, as, as you have time to for a little introspection, it, I think what floated my boat so much was that now, as an adult, I was able to fight the same octopus that had eaten up my first country and destroyed my family. And, and now I am this catalyst here for the first 14 months that, uh, you know, you figure that program um, six or so years afterward, after, after that, was uh, there was 100 people in, in, in involved in this program. But we were five. And so. Um, it was a very humble start, and it was fantastic for me because I got, you know, a lot of experience and a lot of hands-on. So. That's what it sounds like, uh, that a lot of this experience came on the job once you were already in country. Um, and like you said, it was a short turnaround. Uh, you walked the door, grabbed some documents, got a limited briefing, and, and boom, you hit the ground running. Uh, yet in this capacity, you're sent over to lead and inspire. Um, how difficult was it to do that? How did you manage through being somebody who was still learning on one hand, uh, but also turning over this knowledge quickly in an effort to inspire others to liberate their own country? Well, you know, the first the first thing that I attribute that to is I had a great boss. Uh, Colonel Ray was a legendary guy. He jumped into Corregidor at the age of 18 during World War II. And he was our man in Laos for a bunch of years for the agency. And he was my boss. He was a colonel uh, rank uh, paramilitary officer. And um, 
everything that I did out there, he would always coach me. Hey, you're going to be doing this. And, and, and when he basically message to me was the first time I was going to the camp, he says, go see what's going on there. Take as many photos as you can. Start making friends and make them need you. I said, aye, aye, sir, you know, and, and marched on. You know, it may, it may sound rough, but when you walk into a camp like I did for the first time and you see 50 or 60 guys, most of them without shoes, uh, old bolt action Mausers, you know, uh, mountain leprosy, leishmaniasis, all kinds of diarrhea problems and, and infestations. And you sit down with the commanders and you say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm here to try to provide you. So making friends wasn't hard. Uh, of course, the the uh, the reason I was there was to hide the American hand. We could not that that. So I was there. The Hondurans who were fantastic friends. Uh, they uh, and, and allies at the time. They provided me with backstopped. Um, I was uh, I was there as an Air Force intelligence officer, a major, in fact. So um, whether they believed it or not. I don't care. They they were they were into you know the fact that this is the guy that's going to be bringing bringing his beans and bullets. Um, my medical background didn't hurt either because at the time you know there was things that I could sit down with the guys and and, and do some basic triage for them and stuff. So uh, it, it wasn't difficult. Uh, I found um, the greater majority of, of the individuals that I met there. They were the ones that was inspiring, uh, and I think that 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 is in, you know that is kind of infectious. You know when. One person is enthusiastic and so is the other. It just tends to start wrapping people around. And, and uh, I made some really good friends, lost some really good friends there from the Contras. But it was, it was, it was never, never, never something uh, regrettable. It was, it was very beautiful. And to this day, there's a couple of them that I stay in touch with. You know, Rick, to your point, uh, you've lived an experience that has been highly scrutinized and oftentimes misconstrued by members of the media. But as you said, you were there to hide the American hand. And I believe because of that, there wasn't really an opportunity to control the narrative and tell stories like yours from a boots on the ground perspective. So before we move on to some other discussion points, I'd like to really just give you the floor to share with our listening audience your perspective from on the ground as somebody who is actually there, because I think it's generally something that the media at the time and still today missed the mark on. Well, the, the first part of it is the, the myth, debunking the myth that CIA goes out and does things on their own, um, including Bay of Pigs. And, and that, that is all malarkey. You know, the, um, the agency has two jobs. One is collecting intelligence by any means for the president of the United States and doing covert action for the president of the United States. That's the crux of our, of our mission. So for, for us, the hiding the hand was necessary because we did not want it to become a political football. Eventually it did, like everything else, after several years, they leaked. But, I, but at least for those first, for first year, we were, it was pretty sacrosanct, the, what we were really doing there. Started, you know, the, the bananas started getting peeled back little by little. And, you know, six years later, everybody knew who was there. We were there with the military also. So the debunking that myth is important to me. The, the other myth that I like to debunk is that the Contras, the, the freedom fighters that were countering the Sandinista uh, regime for the greater majority, it's made of humans, just like my agency is, like police forces are. So you're always going to have, you know, a bad apple somewhere. But for the most part, these were men and women who were pure in their intent. All they wanted was to, you know, win their country back. And um, they were lucky yeah, that, that, that we got this deal, that they got the sponsorship. And I'm lucky that I was part of that conduit. So th those two things were are, are priceless to me because, you know, these these individuals had 
a reputation of you know drug smuggling and, and murder and all this kind of stuff, and that there were all somosistas that were, you know, the minority of the folks there were the the the, the, the former Somosa guys. Yes, there were the officers. Yes, they were leading some of the stuff, but the masses that were doing the fighting, um, they were all peasants and you know, college kids and you name it. So. My goodness. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to to explain something that has been so highly scrutinized, um, but isn't always fact-based and reality-based. Um, and I think you're a unique individual who can speak to that, having been there and, and seen it directly on the ground. Um, and this was your first, so to speak, 10 years, first decade or so, um, but that wasn't your last stop. You ended up in Peru and the Philippines, and you talk about uh, a lot of your time in the Philippines in the book. And, and again, not to spoil it for people, but we'll talk about it probably a little bit more when we get into the executive protection portion. Of it. But to what extent does international travel or international knowledge or the ability to uh, work with people from different cultures, to what extent was that important to you then while you're at the agency, but also in an executive protection and security management role um, later on? Well, I mean, it's it's priceless, um, especially for, for a CIA background. Uh, we don't operate in the United States. We're forbidden to operate in the United States. So for us, having uh, foreign languages and understanding foreign cultures uh, is, is your road to success. If you cannot do that, if you cannot sit down with an Asian and know what buttons to push or not to push or Arab, or a Latino or whatever European, um, you're in the wrong business. I mean, so that that is that that is very 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 basic uh, for all of us. And the agency does a really good job of, of preparing us. I mean, you know, we uh, we do not send people overseas that do not have operational level of any language, whether it's Chinese or Spanish or Italian. They have to have the ability to sit down with somebody and not only ask them where the bathroom is or if they can have another beer. It's got to be substantial conversations that you're going to be able to figure what makes this person tick uh, and try to provide a, or and what keeps them up at night and then try to provide solutions. And that's how we recruit our, our unilateral sources. So it's very, very important. And uh, I was blessed that I did that. I've done it in, in, in four different continents, if not more. Well, Rick, that's just incredible uh, how much work you've accomplished and where it took you uh, during those years at the agency. I tell you what, Rick, this is a perfect time to take a brief pause and listen to a message from our sponsor for today's episode. When we come back, I'd like to shift our conversation to your post-CIA life and discuss your time with a little company called Blackwater and your insights on executive protection and security management for our listening audience. And for those of you listening today, we will be back with more from Rick after this short break and a message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Four Branches Bourbon, a new whiskey company founded by Rick Franco, Mike Trott, Harold Underdown, and R.J. Casey, veterans of the U.S. Marines, Air Force, Navy, and Army, respectively. Four Branches is dedicated to creating premium bourbons in collaboration with some of the best master distillers and blenders in the industry. Their new mission is to honor all who have served and continue to serve in high-risk environments around the world, and for those who sacrificed their all and to the families and friends who supported them through the years. Four Branches Bourbon is made by those who served honorably and for those who drink honorably. Welcome back, everybody. This is the GSPG podcast. And again, we are talking with Rick Prada, tired CIA, paramilitary, and case officer. 
and also the former vice president of Blackwater. And uh, we were just getting into a conversation here on his transition from CIA into the Blackwater organization. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious, Rick, um, what type of individual does it take to operate in some of these high threat environments that Blackwater was, was so known for operating in, uh, kind of at the kickstart of the Iraq war, and then to diplomats and others around the world as they went to hotspots? Well, you know, especially for the mission that Iraq brought up, um, having first and second tier military background um, was huge. Combat experience wasn't as common as it is now. We got 21 years of, you know, of war. Our guys are about as good as it gets. But the, the quality of the individuals you're talking, the folks that were coming in there were all force recon, you know, Marine Raiders, you know, Green Berets, SEALs, uh, Air Force Special Operations guys. It was the gamut. And in, in a substantial number of police officers, because we had uh, police officers that had the hard skills of you know being with a SWAT team or something, but they also brought something very different to the table. Um, so for the, the executive protection, that was a, a major role also for them. Also, you know, police officers have a uh, an advantage over military guys that they learned to how to defuse situations. In the military, we, we we end situations, and sometimes that's not always the answer. So it, it was that kind of fraternity that came in. Uh, I I got into Blackwater because Eric um, was providing protection for us in Kabul when I was the chief of operations of the counterterrorist side. So in a very distant way, he was working for me because he was working for our, our logistics department for in our security department, which all came under under us. So I had met him. Uh, very likable fellow. I, I like the fact that, uh, and it's a perfect example of the kind of people that, that were attracted to Blackwater. Uh, Eric was a guy that was, you know, his father was a self-made billionaire and, and Eric started Blackwater. But when we gave, when we asked for this particular mission, Eric was one of the first guys, actually he was with the first team that went to Afghanistan to provide security for our embassy, for lack of a better word, uh, was him. And he did not go as a team leader. He went as a nug. And that speaks volumes of, of the guy. But everybody that was comes from that fraternity. You, you mentioned the incredible amount of support that we provide at State Department and DOD. And there's a lot of bad press because that's what sells. You know, the last incident people remember was a big shootout that they had and, you know, that a bunch of people got killed. And what was it? A, a mass murder kind of stuff, uh, which has all been pretty much unproven now and disproven now and everything else. But um, there, there are two incidents that, that highlight the kind of people that we had there. You know, the, the first one, the Polish ambassador and his detail got hit and decimated. That wasn't one of ours. That was not our detail. But we had a Blackwater you know, unit not too far, and they responded to the uh, Blue Force tracker, and they saved the ambassador. Uh, and killed the bad guys, saved the ambassador, whoever was left, took out the wounded. And, you know, these guys got medals from the polls for doing this, but you never saw it in the U.S. press, you know. And then there was another incident. Uh, we had uh, the security protection for a building from a combination of three-letter agencies in Indian territory. And all of a sudden, it came into a fierce attack. There was probably 300 individuals surrounding the building and these guys were in you know, an intense firefight from the rooftops and um, most of them were contractors our contractors they were black our blackwater guys but they did have a marine detail there because that's that's something that off the campus so during the firefight um one of the marines took a round uh he had a sucking chest wound he was on the ground of course like we talked about the importance of self-help number one and number two being able to help your teammate um, he was stabilized, but he was dying. He was going to die if we didn't get him out of there. 
and they were running out of ammunition. So, you know, a, a, a 911 went out, you know, we need help. We need some help here. Well, uh, Army helicopters came in. They they got lit up and they went back and they said, we can't go in there. It's too hot. We're gonna, they're going to knock us down. Air Force came in with the same thing, same thing. They got lit up like a Christmas tree. And so Blackwater took one of their little birds, which are, you know, the Ferraris of helicopters, and zoomed in there. And the guy was a former Navy pilot and uh, wounded in combat even before that. So the guy was a real deal. And he came in and he put the, the skid of the helicopter on the parapet and, and leveled from the backside and leveled it there. Rounds are coming in. The, the one guy in the back throws the ammo boxes onto the floor. They put the Marine back in here and went out and the Marine lived because of, of that medevac. Um, and you don't hear that in the press either. So it, it, it takes a special kind of person. Everybody says, well, you know, they're mercenaries. Uh, they're, they're making more money than our military soldiers do, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not true because here's why. Those guys do not have life insurance. Those guys do not have retirement. They do not have BX privileges. You know, their their wives don't get housing. They make a per day rate that may last 30 days or maybe last three years. But what people forget is that these people were all part of the patriotic backbone of this country. With Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines, uh, law enforcement, or, or whatever, they all had that different background than the average American do doesn't understand. Got to understand that 2% of the population at any given time serves in the military. And I always add 2% of the police because I'm a big supporter of our law enforcement. I work with them in all capacities for years. And uh, there's another 96% back there that has absolutely no skin in the game. So guys like that that come in and, and they make their bones in the military, um, and especially if they go with something like federal service of some kind for law enforcement or, or for the agency, they have a, a rounding that very few civilians can even understand. Yeah, that's very true. It's a, it's a unique uh, group of individuals um, who learn a unique set of skills, whether it's a de-escalation portion that law enforcement brings or kind of uh, the understanding of how to bring an end to a fight that you don't oftentimes choose the time and place of. And so from your perspective, I know, you know, mentorship, when you've been in this world, as long as you have, uh, you kind of transfer a little bit from being that mentee to that mentor for a lot of people. Um, and you've talked to a significant amount of individuals who have served either in the military or some sort of public service, law enforcement, uh, fire, or, or anything uh, across that gamut. And what advice do you have for individuals, either if it's law enforcement or military, you know, you hit that 10 or 15 years and, and you're kind of getting worn down, you're kind of seeing maybe there's greener pastures in the private sector. And in a lot of cases, there are different types of pastures that you see uh, these guys operating in, in the private sector capacity comparatively to the public sector. Um, what advice do you have for guys who are maybe just starting out, but realizing, you know, private sector security or security management roles are something I'm interested in? Or do I wait and do my 20 years? Do I retire and then pursue this? What advice do you have for people who are maybe in different phases of their career? That's an excellent question. And one that, I, that I'm very proud of uh, being a good part of because um, I was blessed with leaders, not managers. I was blessed with leaders. And the first one was in pararescue, a legendary PJ by the name of Wayne Fisk, my, uh, Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Fisk, Sante Raid. You know, Maya Guez, four tours of Nam. I mean, the guy was just a, a walking, you know, hero. And he saw something in me early on that I didn't see in myself for years. And I think that that's the first step for being a good mentor 
is always having to keep keeping an eye out there. You know, I cannot pay Wayne Fisk back for everything that he did for me. So I can only pay it forward. And I think that as you progress through the ranks, if you have the the the, uh, the luck to fall under somebody who is not a manager, but they're leaders, um, and they take you under their wing, the only way that you could repay that is by doing exactly the same thing forward on from there. And and I think that's that's essential. I um, I did that very early in my career. People trying to get in with the paramilitary side. Uh, I taught at Fort Bragg for seven years. Of course, called uh, Advanced Special Operations and Techniques. Um, and all the students come from the soft community. You know, after a week or so, when they got because I played the chief of station, of course. Uh, after they break the ice, after a week or so, every single class had several guys that would come up to me and say. Man, I've always wanted to join Ground Branch, or I want you know what? How was it at Blackwater? You know, can you know what do you suggest? The first question I always ask them is how much time you got in, because when you're young, um, when you're a twenty year old kid, twenty years is a lifetime. When you're 70, 20 years is nothing. I've been married forty, so uh, it, it it is one of those. So the first thing I ask them is how much time do you have in, and they'll say four years, six years, eight years. I say okay. You are in a position that you, if you make a transition, you may be able to get into a federal uh, agency. But what are your credentials? Okay, do you have a college education essential for 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 the agency? Do you have a second language? That's huge for for anybody who's interested in in our fraternity to get in that cultural that worldliness. You know, besides the education. So um, the majority of them have ten years or more. And the first thing that I tell them, I say, you're a paratrooper, right? Yes, sir. All right. Airborne. Well, would you jump without a parachute? They would look at me like I had horns. I said, well, that's what you're talking about doing. you got 12 years in, and you're going to let go of this parachute to look at greener pastures. You know, do your time, get your pensions, get your medical, your TRICARE, and then you can afford the downtime for looking for something that that is uh, that is floats your boat in, in a different capacity. Um, again, uh, some of them ask early enough where they only have like four years in is that eventually I would like to do this. And I, and I remind them, I said, oh, you know, the, the window for the agency is 36 years old if you're going to come in as a staff officer. And so what you want to do is during that period, let's say you went in as 18 and, you know, you're going to do um, 10, 12, 14 years. Uh, the only way that I that that I would do it is if I stayed at least in the reserves, because you don't want to throw away that. And all federal services uh, are mandated to allow us to actively be involved in the reserves. And the agency was great about it. So uh, that's usually the, the advice that I try to give them. You know, if timing is right, these are the things that you need to have in your in your rucksack, uh, the language, the, the cultural experience, blah, blah, plus your paramilitary skills. Um, and then subsequently having having that that ability to say, okay, I can live for three months looking for a job uh, rather than leaving hand to mouth. To that aspect, um, and I know either whether in the military side, in the special operations community, and your tempo is so high, right? You're overseas, you're back, you're, you're either training, you're always doing something, right? And then also for law enforcement, if you work at a busy division, if you work in a busy city, a lot of these big city coppers... Um, the stories that I hear of individuals struggling a little bit with that transition. Um, how do you feel the time, if you're able to to kind of grit it out or spend there, the time and experience also, what kind of shift from either military or high octane law enforcement, firefighting, 
do you have to prepare yourself for when you do hit that executive protection or that corporate security management role, which is a very different pace? You know, it's not going to be kicking down doors. It's not going to be um, getting into firefights. Um, in that community, everything's about kind of the risk management, right? If you have to pull a weapon, seven or eight other things have gone really bad. Um, what does time and experience and the transition give yourself time, like you said? to wind down from that high octane experience and prepare for something different? How does that make you more applicable, more appropriate for that environment? Well, I think with, with the years, you know, we acquired wisdom and injuries, you know, and uh, most to start mitigating about, you know, I can no longer jump or I can no longer do this, or I don't want to be chasing some guy for 14 blocks. So the, the, the transitional part of it is, is a reality. Um, for the private sector security kind of stuff, people have to understand that it is very much the same as my job, low visibility, okay? Uh, in, in our business collectively, the moment you draw a weapon, your mission is blown. Even if you get away with it, your mission is blown. Uh, and, you know, if you make it out alive, you're lucky, but, you know, you're, you're still, your mission is, is not no longer there. So for us, uh, things like awareness, surveillance detection, those kind of trainings of, of, of what keeps you from having to respond to something by the simple art of avoidance? You know, so detection and avoidance are a lot faster and a lot more successful than quick draw. And there's a story in the Philippines that you read about there where if I would have been, I'm a decent shot, I still am. But if I would have reacted to these guys drawing their weapons, if I had not noticed the modus operandi, uh, and, and, and actually and my friend who was with me, because I, he also saw it. I probably wouldn't be talking to you because there's no way I, I was going to outdraw a Philippine sparrow hitman that that's all they do is quick draw and shoot people in the head. So um, th those are those are the things that, that are part of the transition. We all, I think, come to the realization that when you start getting into your later 30s and early 40s, you know, that, that rucksacking and all that you know stuff is just starts being debilitating, you know, and the injuries mount. So Anybody who, who, uh, who's in that position needs to start preparing through education uh, and, and also through what do they do inside the service. You know, um, a lot of uh, pararescue guys that I know, uh, when they could no longer be PJs, because now, you know, you know they, they've been in for 17 years and they're all banged up and, you know, they got bullet holes in them and, and um, they would go into another MOS in the military. Uh, and, and learn something. And, and the example that I like to use is I had a uh, a Green Beret uh, 18 Echo, um, which is a communicator. And one of the exercises that I did, get, the kid was incredible. Four or five tours, he'd been blown up. Uh, he was, you know, had a bag of pills with him all the time. And uh, he calls me up one day and he says, uh, Rick, you know, the uh, they're offering me uh, a new position within Green Berets, but it's it's a it's a cyber you know, exploitation of cyber and protection of cyber. And, you know, that sounds boring as hell, but, you know, I don't, I, and I said, stop. I said, that's the kind of job you want to take. And here's why. And this is what I explained to him. How many 18 Echoes are in the Army, in the Green Berets? A good number. Of those, how many have combat experience? All of them. Uh, how good are they at being 18 Echoes? Extremely good. How many have, have actual formal training on cybersecurity and cyber exploitation, you become a one percenter, and that's how you get hired. 
And he eventually did. He got out and he's doing very well working for a company that, that does cybersecurity and that kind of stuff. So, and, and that's just one of the many venues that are out there. But it comes to time when you have to start looking at what am I going to do next um, that is physically realistic. Um, and by that time, you usually also acquired family responsibilities that you also have to put higher on the, on the list than when you were 20 year old. So. That's very true. Um, and, and like you mentioned, you've been married 40 some years. 40. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's longer than even my entire lifespan. So from that perspective, as somebody who's traveled the world in a number of capacities um, and in this world of executive protection, security management, you're on the go a lot. You're on assignment, usually weekends, holidays, all the days that normal nine to five jobs uh, don't require. Um, how important is it for you to find that individual or if you're already married to ensure that you're continuing to have a supportive home life? And that's both ways. It's not just a one-way street there. How do you embody that? How do you achieve that? Um, what are some advice that you have for the guys still out there operating in this capacity? Yeah, especially uh, for, for the operators. Um, I got to start by saying that I was lucky. I've, I've always been luckier than bad, than, than good, right? And uh, my wife is also Cuban. She uh, she actually lived in Cuba under the Castro regime a lot longer than I did. I left when I was ten. She didn't leave until she's fourteen, and she's four years younger. So she you know, she did a lot of time. Her father suffered tremendously uh, under under Castro because he was again an educated individual that wasn't playing the game, but. Um, so my, my wife got it, you know, she understood that, yeah, you know, this is crazy, but it's crazy for a good reason. So the first thing is if, if you, if you have a spouse, you have to start educating them with what makes you tick. Why do you do this? What is the moral high ground on this? It's not just a paycheck. Nobody, nobody goes into these businesses to get rich. You know, um, you could establish some bonafides and grow and later on in private sector, make a ton of money. Um, but nobody goes into pararescue or to Green Berets to uh, become a mogul, you know. So trying to explain to your main teammate, which is your spouse, you know, what makes you tick, why is it that you do, why you do it, I think that that's important. I was saved at because my wife knew what communism was. She knew what I was fighting. And when we went from the transition from, you know, Cold War to terrorism, um, she also understood that, you know, a lot of this was tied up. Most of the uh, Terrorist organizations at the beginning uh, were communist back, you know. So, uh, so I had that. I think that the other thing that I would caution, which I didn't do unfortunately, was I overprotected my wife, um, and I did it out of kind of kindness. Um, I know her character. I didn't want to worry her. She was taking care of the kids, and and I was absent a lot. I didn't want her to worry any more than necessary, but. I think that the, what you lose by that is they have no understanding of what you're doing. There's things that are classified you cannot talk to, but you can definitely let them know that man, I had a this happened today in, in general terms, and you know we're trying to fix this or whatever. And the contrast is for Johnny when his father comes home after having a bad day at the bank uh, means that he didn't make his quota or he didn't sell enough cars or whatever it was. When operators have a bad day, either a mission went belly up or somebody's dead or somebody was compromised. So the severity of that, unless you can convey that to them, you know, when I had a bad day, 
she had no way of gauging what a bad day was because I I was overprotected. And, and you know, the, the proof to that theory is she cuts me a lot more slack now that she read the book. She didn't know 90% of what's in that book, uh, much less the 20% that I wasn't allowed to talk about. So uh, I, I think that establishing that that credibility. And then the, the second one is is always having the quality time. You know, it's not being there all the time. That's That's impossible in our careers. Um, but when you do have the time, you know, give your heart and soul to your family, you know, um, with your kids, you know, give them a good example, give them counseling, you know, be there for them in, in those moments when they they absolutely have to. Uh, I think that that's an important part of the balance that we all need to do, you know, as we do our transitions. Rick, I think that's huge and, and it will help a lot of individuals with their own public to private sector transitions, whether they choose to get out early or decide to wait until they've served their full 20 years. Um, and with that, when it comes to these military and law enforcement individuals, um, they're hitting their retirement dates at a relatively young age. Many of them are in their late 40s, early 50s, and there's an opportunity for many to have a successful second career in these later years. Um, while it tends to be a little bit more of a chess game, a lot less physical action, uh, there's still plenty of opportunities to do truly amazing things with some amazing colleagues to protect high net worth individuals or even a company's entire brand. Um, now, I'd like to circle back to something that you alluded to while talking with your military mentee who decided to embark on a cybersecurity opportunity while still in the military. And on the topic of cybersecurity, I remember when I was plucked from my first round of government service as a staffer in the Texas legislature by former deputy director of NSA, Scott George, someone who became a close personal friend and mentor until his passing in 2020. Um, at the time, I was already working critical infrastructure protection policy and had a unique vantage point into some of the cyber defenses being leveraged by both public and private domains and saw the extent to which the world was racing towards a true cyber convergence, not just in the security industry, but also society as a whole. And for our listeners, Rick, um, who are either in law enforcement or the military who do not yet have a cyber background, how important is it to possess some sort of cybersecurity understanding for companies who are seeking to hire individuals for security roles and even in the context of executive protection with the embedding of security tech amongst the protector? It, it is essential. I mean, let's face it, you, you got to evolve with the times. You know, this, this did not exist 25 years ago that we have to worry about, you know, people and drones and, and all this other stuff that comes into security. You know, I mean, that's, um, that, those are all staying up with the science and technologies and applying them synergistically to whatever it is that you're trying to do and protect um, under the same understanding that, you know, you are in protection is avoiding a situation. You know, yes, you'll get reward if you get in a firefight or you get an ambush and you drive out of there. Um, but it'd be even better uh, if you see the ambush and be able to call it and, and, and divert. So, um, but yeah, I, th I think it's essential to have that balance and, and to be able to uh, to acquire that maturity of other other crafts that are out there that you could bring to the table. Um, again, uh, I don't believe in, in in PSDs that are strictly Navy SEALs. I had a lot of people tell me that. Oh, you know, I want to go to Mexico. Can you give me three Navy SEALs to go there? I go, why do you want Navy SEALs? Well, because they're the best. I said, yeah, they're the best at blowing people's faces off. But are they good at counter surveillance? Are they good at, at, at the manners they build, how to lower their profile so they don't stand out? Uh, that, that was one of the hardest things for me to teach 
are soft guys. You know, the military is going in this transition from kicking doors, shooting people in the face to low visibility operations, which is supporting a local uh, country in low vis operations, try to avoid wars. Okay. So, so in, in that particular case, uh, you cannot stand out. You have to be able. So I, I, one, one thing that I used to do with the guys that I was training, I would tell them the first day, I said, okay, tomorrow at such and such a time, each one of you has a place that you got to go case restaurant or library or something. I want you to find out what hours are they open, where's a good place to have a meeting, where the bathrooms are, where the exits are, blah, 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 blah. Well, they didn't know that there was always somebody there with a camera filming their reaction. And I would talk to them. I would say, you got to say, understand, I know you're a meat eater. You need to play that down. Well, that's like talking to Popeye, right? So uh, video speaks a thousand words, you know. They would walk in and it was like the Terminator. They're looking at things and they would turn to the lady up. What time do you open? Um, what time do you close? Where's your bathroom? You know, and I would film that. And then I would show them and said, this is how you came across. And then I would show them me doing the exercise in disguise. How benign I did exactly the same thing that they were out to do without. I, I left without people saying, who was that? Nothing. You just you didn't make a ripple in, on the screen. And that's what you want to do. So uh, it, it is very important to learn to learn that synergy of stuff. Uh, but it's not just technical and it's not just the, um, you know, the kinetic part of it is understanding that operations, you cannot stand out in, in that world. Your biggest tool is flying under the radar. You know, that's interesting. And Rick, before we wrap things up, I'd like to discuss the aspect of the Hollywood protector in contrast to who makes up the industry in real life. Like you mentioned earlier, there are many who, when they hear about executive protection, immediately think of someone pulled straight out of the soft community, where someone is much more likely to be 6'5", 250 with muscles upon muscles. But I always enjoy when I attend a course or an industry conference throughout the United States, and I get an opportunity to see the diversity of individuals that work in the protection industry. And the people who form the concentric rings of protection around an executive and their staff on these protection details. And can you speak specifically about the female protectors who are out there doing this job right alongside the guys and are in a number of different aspects doing things a lot better than their male counterparts? I would tell you that that is arguably my pet project. I use women in all the operations I was in. Um, it's a cultural thing. Even in the United States, women do not present a normal threat to somebody. Overseas is even more so. Uh, and there's the machismo uh, aspect of it that, you know, um, women will eat your lunch every single time when it comes to the soft skills. They don't have the ego that men have. Um, they, it's not a watch measuring contest, you know, who's got the bigger watch. No, it's it's all the professional. And, you know, if you see two guys in a car, I don't care who you are, you're going to go, hmm, there's two guys sitting in a car, if you're paying attention. If there's a man and a woman in the car, you may go, hmm, there's a man and a woman in the car. That's yeah, probably nothing. There's two women in the car. They go, hmm, good looking. And they keep walking. Totally unaware that the one that's going to kill you is that little girl with a ponytail. Because you're you're going in there doing the stereotypical looking for the big palooka who's the bodyguard. And that was always what I taught when I was doing the stuff at Blackwater and subsequently when you were doing that kind of PSD. My MO was the first team that gets to the site did the casing. They come in early, they're totally benign, and they're carrying a big gun somewhere. And you sit somewhere else. And now you come in with your protective detail that may sit here or there. But look, in, in our business, 
if you bring four people and I know it, I'll bring eight. But if I plan for four and all of a sudden I don't realize that that young man and the pimple faced girl with ponytails are actually in their late 20s and they will shoot you. Um, that's how you win the game. That's how you win the game. Uh, when you're in somebody else's turf, which is everyday world for, for uh, VIP protection, um, you have to be able to beat them at the game and you cannot allow them to put you on an X. Um, and, and that's by, by, by profile. So huge supporter of women in, 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 in that business, um, you know, and not only in that business, a lot of, there was a lot of um, uh, misconceptions about women being able to recruit and, and, and handle agents overseas uh, because, you know, immediately the guy's going to want to go take them to the hotel room and, you know, nothing, some of the best case officers I've worked with were females and they recruited the crap out of the world. They ran them better than most guys because they have that sensitive side of, you know, and I don't know of anyone that even if the guy made a slight overture, didn't put the brakes on it enough and push the right buttons to get the individual to understand the, the profession and, and what the mission is. So big fan of them. And uh, I, I would recommend anybody who has a serious PSD to consider that hidden teeth, you know, that surveillance with teeth, but hidden um, that uh, we use in the agency tremendously. Um, that's a fairly, you know, recent as far as it goes. It could be it's be post Cold War stuff, but very, very useful. Absolutely. And for those readers or Audible fans out there who are looking for a good example of this, there's a book written by Tony Mendez, another CIA legend titled Moscow Rules, and it is littered with stories about the lives of CIA case officers and also the female case officers themselves who operated highly effectively in these difficult environments overseas. So on that note, Rick, before we wrap things up here, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share with our audience where you can be reached on social media and how someone might find your book if they're looking to give it a read. Well, uh, thank you. Um, uh, I am on social media. Um, that was because of the book. I had never been in there before. So I am on Facebook and, and LinkedIn and uh, Instagram. My website is www.rickprado.com. Uh, and um, that takes you to a background history, but it also at the bottom takes you. I don't sell books. I don't, I'm not in the business of selling books. Uh, I promote them. That's a different story. There you'll, you'll get the direct link for Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and they can, they can reach me through social media. It's, it's, it's an easy way to do that too. Wonderful. Well, we will make sure to have that all highlighted on our show notes so uh, our listeners can easily access that information. Um, but Rick, I want to thank you again for sharing so much of your time with us today. It has been an incredibly insightful conversation. And again, thank you for your many years of service to this country and for serving now those who continue to protect this country today. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that comment. And I also thank you for what you're doing because it's very important. You're educating our masses of people that need uh, to know that knowledge. And there we owe them that. We owe them that. We owe them some kind of reward. For their, for their sacrifices. So thank you for what you do. Thank you very much, Rick. And for those listening, this has been another episode of the GSBG podcast with guest Rick Prado. Until next time, stay safe.